0: It's Friday, February 15th, 2013. Welcome to episode 10 of insert content here. Insert content here. Words intentionally unclear. Rap papadidu pap Dodo Insert content here. Jazz Hi. I'm Jeff Eaton, Senior Architect at Lullabot, and you're a host for Insert Content Here, a podcast about content strategy, content tactics, uh, content hand-waving, all the stuff that goes along with that. Um, I'm here this week with uh, Annette Baker, a uh, longtime uh, writer, content strategist, speaker, uh, gamer and podcaster, and uh, all-around cool person. And uh, she's going to be talking with us this week about um, everything from how to how to... Keep actual writers from from being turned into horribly abused uh, CMS drudges to uh, <laughs> how to how to make micro content really sing. And I, I might actually ask some Zork-related questions, but we'll see.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast. First-time caller, long-time listener.
0: Well thank you. Um I actually was look, just watching the uh video of a session that you gave. I believe the title of it was The Art of Making Stuff Backwards. It's all yes. about microcopy and um microcontent and how critical it is and how off, how it's often just like pushed to the the distant edges of projects. I thought it was just absolutely fantastic.
1: Oh, thank you. I think that was for um, Update Conference, which was run by Aurel Balkan, and um, he kind of did it as a kind of TED-ish experience.
0: It was only like a 15-minute session.
1: Yeah, yeah. So we were giving a maximum of 18 minutes, and I actually ran quite short because I went through it really fast, as I generally do. Uh, so 18 minutes was um, kind of, it was a bit tough for me. I was the first time I've ever had to do it do a talk that short, but that in itself kind of gave me the idea of what I should be talking about, which was the focus of the day was kind of on apps and where their place are in the the ecosystem and stuff. So there are a lot of people there who are really into iOS development, just getting into stuff for the first time, exploring with Android, doing some stuff with BlackBerry. And so in it I was kind of saying, well the, the way that this stuff usually goes is just in the same way they used to be bedroom coders that would build games on the spectrum. And it didn't really matter if they were a bit rubbish because you were putting them out to a small audience and then you would fix them and so on. Then that moved to the web. And then we get to apps and we're getting a similar thing now, which is you have a great idea. And then it <laughs> <laughs> happens and then profit. You know, you make it to the top of the app store. And and actually it's the <laughs> that that makes that makes the difference, and I was um, I was really inspired by uh, I I was lucky enough to work with CERN um, a year or two ago uh, on some of their public site stuff, and so we got to do a tour of the campus and see bits of oh, the, like the,
0: the like the particle accelerator yeah. so like we, physics before.
1: exactly. So we get to go and see bits of the LHC and how they put it together, and and there's this one bit. Um, this segment that's uh, just basically an unused bit of the LHC that they've got lying around spare, you know, as you do. Uh, and you look at it and it's a cross section. And within this this one cross section that's maybe about as big as your average desk, there there's like 300 painted individual pieces that had to be designed for that purpose. You can't get a screw to do what a screw needs to do in the LHC just out of BNQ or Home Depot or, or whatever. You know, they had to sit down and design. How are we going to make a screw that can withstand the, both the massive energy, heat energy that's going to be put through it. And what happens when that cools down? Because that happens incredibly quickly. You know, within the space of seconds, things are heating up by three hundred degrees.
0: So, just grabbing a couple of like you know wall hanging screws—it's is- not—it's
1: not, it's not going to work out so well. Uh, which is why the—I don't know if you remember— a few years ago, they had problems with the LHC when the magnets kind of ended up fusing together, and it was because one weld, one unique weld, failed and the heat that placed there it just made it into a, basically a superconductor so you had magnets the size of double-decker buses kind of crashing up against each other um and, and that's the level at which they have to think that really tiny tiny delicate level and they see the LHC as a work in progress they don't see it as a completed thing in fact for most of 2013 the LHC is now going to shut down while they go back and change all the worlds that were made like the original world that caused the accident so that when they go back to it they can ramp it up to you know Twice, twice as fast as they've been going at this point.
0: Wait a minute, I th- I see where this is going. This is this is an analogy for content auditing, isn't it?
1: It is a little bit. <laughs> it's a never-ending, ongoing process, and and I actually think that that responds quite well to the idea of iterative design and agile development and things like that. You know, if the LHC isn't fixed, if they've shipped the LHC but they're okay with going back and changing bits of it, I think we should be okay about changing bits of our apps when we discover they don't work so well.
0: It's one of those things where as, you know, in, in a CMS or like a, a heavily content-oriented website too, which is a lot of what, what I work with, it's funny how even in such a malleable environment where in theory we should be able to change things willy-nilly if we decide that even the smallest bit needs to be tweaked stuff sits and gets ossified in place so frequently if it's not something that's like right in front of our faces um, on a day-to-day production basis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and processes um, have to be put in place to stop things from becoming that, which is almost the opposite of what it should be. It should be, you know, people should be able to have the freedom to change the little things they know aren't going right. But really we have to put processes in to make sure that they work. And because that's hard – we tend to not do it at all. And so I often when I do workshops with designers and developers about content, and I say, the the first thing I want you to get through your head is that the web is not a book, we don't produce the first edition, and then have to wait six, six years and enough sales to bring out the second edition with your new research and corrections from the previous one. And, you know, it's okay to find stuff that you need to change. Uh, And that you know, that's why we have archiving. We archive the old version, so we're not just chucking it out. You know, you don't chuck the bath- baby out with the bathwater. You make sure you record the changes that you're doing, just like you do a change log when you're changing code. We do a change log for content, and that's fine. Everyone knows where we're at then.
0: I like it. I like it. Well, you know, okay, I, I feel like I did a very brief introduction. But um I know like I know that you like come from a strong copywriting background and a lot of the speaking that you do has a heavy emphasis on, you know, the importance of writing and how that, you know, and how I suppose, those kinds of small focused bits are treated. But like how, how did you get into content strategy and this kind of stuff?
1: So uh, my husband, Paul Annette, when we met around about 10 years ago now, pretty much to the day. Um, He was a a web designer, lead designer for Harrods of Knightsbridge, which sounds incredibly posh until you realize that at at that point in 2001, what Harrods had for a website isn't something that you'd put on MySpace these days.
0: That's pretty standard, though.
1: Well, yes, very much so. He was doing this this web stuff, but he wasn't, he'd got to a point where he kind of done everything he could do at Harrods, so he wanted to go freelance. Um, I was working in, uh, radio production, writing, but basically I was the intern. Um, and I had been writing the content for the websites because that's what your intern did. Because again, 2001. Um,
0: of course. Who would, who would actually staff professionals to do the (laughs)
1: content? Who would choose a writer to do this? So thankfully I was actually quite good at writing. I'd always been quite good at writing and I'd always played around with the web since, you know, relatively early, I suppose. And so I had an idea how the medium should work, and I knew that it shouldn't work the same way as radio. Although there were definitely bits from radio that I could take from that and apply. So Paul was, you know, thinking he might leave Harrods, and I was going to leave my job at the radio because it was really long hours and bad pay. And um, and so we both, you know, decided we would move to uh, to London, where the uh, streets are paved with gold. It is true. Um, unfortunately, you can't get any of the gold off the streets, so we were quite poor. So Paul started taking on freelance work, you know, going about putting this in his portfolio and whatever. And he was designing really lovely sites, beautiful sites, all standards compliant and shiny. And then the clients would eventually provide the copy. And it was so bad, this content, that I couldn't let him put it in his portfolio as it was. Because (laughs) on the whole, people assumed that the web designer also wrote your copy. So it became a big shock to them when they discovered that actually they had to do that bit. And that the web designer had dropped English at school like a hot potato the moment he could get out of it because art school or design school or whatever. Um, And so I started writing the copy for free for all of Paul's clients, evenings, weekends, that kind of stuff. And then I gave this up as a as a bad lot and decided to have a baby. Uh, so I was going to be a full time stay at home mum. Perfectly fine with me. I was just going to carry on writing in my spare time and stuff. Uh, and then... You know,
0: to take a break from actually dealing with client content issues.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, and then I... Paul then joined ClearLeft, an agency uh, in Brighton, because we'd moved to Brighton at that point, and uh, and they wanted someone to help out with a couple of their clients. They had clients that really needed copy doing for really interesting non-profit stuff, but they didn't have a lot of budget being non-profits. So they approached me and asked how much I would charge to do a bit of copywriting. And um, I set my day rate at the amount it would cost to put my child in nursery for the day. So I must have been the cheapest copywriter on the planet for a while. Um, but it's, you
0: know, it's funny because like, I, I actually got my start. You know we, I, I went from like freelance writing to a small marketing agency in the area that you know eventually decided they wanted to do web pages instead of just DTP. Mm-hmm. And that, there's that whole like, swath of, of stuff where you're like, okay, so what are our rates? Well, how much does it cost to keep the lights on? <laughs> exactly.
1: That was very much my, like, I, because basically because I had no formal copywriting training and I knew copywriters at the radio station who had gone to, you know, essentially copywriting school. Um, And I thought I could write reasonably well, but I just thought there was perhaps a way load more to it than, than I knew. Um, And uh, I mean, this was before the days of Mad Men. But, you know, I was certainly thinking about big advertising agencies that charge for copywriting and not really knowing where my place was in that. So it was very much what do I need to, to keep the lights on and keep my kid in nursery and, and be able to do this? And, you know, f- for me, the big reward was buying a pair of shoes at the end of the month. <laughs> <laughs> Woo-hoo! Um but the work just kept coming in, um, which was exciting. It turns
0: out being good at the yeah. writing of copy is pretty much what it takes.
1: Yeah, it turns out that's it. And also, the, the combination at the time, this was, I guess, about 2006, the combination, the magic combination was being good at writing copy and understanding the web, understanding what went into a website. And the only reason I really knew that is I sat with Paul while he was making them. I'm not... I by no means a coder I'm like if I if I'm coding something's gone horribly wrong with your project and the least you need to worry (laughs) about is my code yeah I it was just that that fusion that understanding and I hadn't come from a print background I'd come from radio so I understood how adverts work but without having all that that enforced stuff about um too much word count or, or stuff like that so I was able to come at it reasonably free and easy Um, And I just gave myself a lot of space to make a lot of mistakes. And actually, that's that's still what I do today. I still regularly cock stuff up and have to go back and work out, well, why is this actually not working and what do I not like about it? So I try and be as upfront with my clients as possible and say, I I know you've hired me because I'm an expert, but that was kind of your mistake because I'm really not an expert. (laughs) But I am good at doing stuff over and over and over until we get it right. So we'll go with that.
0: Iterative. Isn't just some sort of magic word for, and we do things faster and always get it right the first time, you know, (laughs) it it, it means you arrive at something by, you know, you fail fast, you learn quickly, you identify that it's not working and then you change and you do that rapidly. And the end result is much better for it. Yeah. Not the first the first shot is always you know a bulls
1: i i've i've always described my copywriting technique as um people often remember when they were in in secondary school in high school you'd go to chemistry and there would be one one or two lessons in the year um where your your teacher would go behind some glass cabinet and put these enormous <laughs> rubber gloves on and like start pouring dangerous chemicals in this containment that is me copywriting that is essentially what i do to get started i just chuck words at each other until they stick and I usually end up focusing on a couple of keywords that I think resonate with what that client is trying to describe, even if they haven't quite got to it yet. I try and you know um push them towards different choices of language and see what they gravitate towards, and see whether that's actually a good fit for them as well, because um you know sometimes there there's always an aspirational element of writing copy uh especially product descriptions and service descriptions you know, what people want to project that they are and what they are there's often a gap and your job is to bridge that sensitively um so you know sometimes my job is saying to clients you're not really this um and if you tell people this instead of focusing on what you are you will be disappointing to them when you've already got you've got so many good things to offer them it seems a shame to focus on the stuff that you're actually not
0: uh, like sort of teasing apart what a client really is and what people will connect with from sort of the the internal aspirations that they have about what they wish people perceived them as. Yeah,
1: I mean, my life is basically a walking Dilbert strip sometimes. Um, you know, I'll go <laughs> to meetings with people from marketing and they'll tell me what they are. And then I'll go to the product designers and they'll tell me what they are. And then I'll go to the CEO and the CCO and they tell me what they are. And it's trying to bring these things together um and and i have on occasion brought groups of people together and shown them the three different statements they've made about what they are and how massively disconnected they are. Um, well it's just
0: kind it, of it seems funny because like you know that, that the first sort of, you know, stake in the ground article about content strategy that was, you know, was published in a list apart, the header image for it was, you know, that the classic image of like the three blind men feeling <laughs> different parts of an <laughs> elephant.
1: Yeah, and that I mean that applies so much to the output of a content strategist a lot of the time, especially if I like me, I am freelance, I tend to go into organizations often alongside an agency who've brought me in. But, um, you know, it can really be sometimes me against the people, you know, uh, and I, sometimes I have to bring bad news to them, uh, and, and I spend a lot of my time talking to these people individually about why things aren't working, where things are going, going to go in the future, how things are going to resolve themselves, helping them retrain, refocus, go in a different direction. And then I go to my next prospective client and they're like, can you show me the work that you produced from this client? And it's, well, I've got a bit of a content audit and I've got some page tables I designed. But mostly it was me talking to them and saying, here's why things aren't going wrong, going right. Here's where we're going to change stuff. And there's not necessarily a lot of output from that you that you'll see in the next six months because it'll take them that long to tick over and get organized again. And inevitably, those clients go, yeah, we probably won't need that so much. (laughs) <laughs> because because there is just isn't necessarily that self awareness or all, all that awareness comes from one person within the organisation who has said we need some budget to fix this problem and we can't do it ourselves let's get someone in but not necessarily no one else is necessarily in that place to recognise what the problem is yet uh, so they are still groping at the bits of the elephant um, but
0: uh, it, it seems like I mean that that's such a that's such a persistent challenge like all across the board with especially with content work you know it seems like a lot of companies have finally started to internalize that you know the actual software that runs the website we should we will probably need to invest something in it but the content it always feels like you know it's on it's at the margins and and i mean at least personally like something that's been on my mind a lot like over the past couple of weeks actually is that question of micro content the like the really small chunks that almost mm-hmm. completely fade into the background but have such a big impact on like how users actually perceive what they're seeing and what they're reading.
1: I think companies often forget that's the conversation, that's the chit-chat that happens over the phone between the salesperson and the person ordering, and that's now moved to the web. Um, and so, mm. you know, you don't want it to be an unnecessary fluff but you do want it to reflect the company and the company's values and what they're trying to do. And so part of that is making your checkout as easy as possible. And if if you have to have a slightly complicated step, uh, take, take for example, um, Rosetta Stone, the language uh, learning uh, software people. Um, they often have customers who will be buying um, something in one language to be shipped to a different country from their billing address in a separate language from what they actually speak themselves and so there's all these different contingencies and and things in place and so looking at how they on their web form set up shipping um they do not make it a default that you will have stuff sent to your billing address because in I imagine in the majority of cases for them that's not actually necessarily what's going on
0: oh interesting so like because so many people are grabbing some of this while they're going to be traveling or something yeah. like that defaulting to your shipping address would almost always end up being just one more thing for the user to go in and unset or accidentally get wrong. Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm, I'm going to be generous and assume that they've looked at the numbers of people that are buying from their billing address or not. And then there's a reason that they've chosen that option. For the purpose of this podcast, we'll just assume that's what's, what's happened. Yeah. But certainly that's what like you don't, want your, you don't want your weekly grocery shopping to go anywhere pretty much other than your billing address. So it makes sense to have that as a default. But that, yeah, that micro content that you find in amongst the stuff, error messages as well. Um, is a is a, oh, yeah. a brilliant one um i mean i i I keep a a running collection of really bad error messages that I found um and I did a presentation i've done it a few times but the the main recording I think of it was at web directions London in two thousand and nine i think where i I kind of went through all this microcopy stuff and it was a weird thing it was at, like a double track conference, and I was kind of expecting that my room wouldn't be that busy because I was in the smaller room and it was packed to the rafters it was just incredible the amount of people that came to hear about error messages um but there were like,
0: everybody loves seeing a terrible error message that's true that's there is theory. there is definitely an element of that
1: but i was i was thrilled that people you know came to see it and people still say to me now i remember the three things you said about error messages which is which is really cool which is um you say state the error explain the error create a path to resolution That's the key to writing a good error message.
0: I've always, I've always been in favour of the operation could not be completed because zero.
1: (laughs) One of the examples that I gave is um, um, password password cannot be accepted. You cannot have the character I in the third position. (laughs) What what was going on in the background there to make that thing?
0: At what point did that validation make sense? Exactly. Somewhere there was a conversation where it did. but <laughs> It was like, yeah,
1: do you know what? I'm, I've got pizza. I'm going.
0: It's <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to go somewhere else. Yeah, exactly.
1: So there's a few things like that. And I, I mean, I really like working on microcopy and that microcontent stuff for, the, for that reason. Because I think it is, often you can get a lot of people who embrace the big scale marketing of co- company stuff. And they'll have big um, campaigns that they're running on microsites and Facebook pages and so on, but it's often that that individual microcopy that's really personality of the the company that kind of gets overlooked. So I, I kind of like working on that because I feel like um it's 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 actually pretty low hanging fruit. It's an easy way to make a difference.
0: Yeah, it, it's not necessarily like you know you you've got to go off and you know into a room and like drink some whiskey and pull out your manual <laughs> typewriter and like wait for inspiration to strike to you know make the error message feel a little friendlier and clearer exactly
1: it's really it's it's pretty much copywriting 101 anyone can give it a go and also most most people can sneakily give it a go without asking permission it's one of those things that it's easier to to seek forgiveness and ask permission for um, you know, if you make some changes to the checkout that you think are going to be an improvement, providing you keep a mark of before and afterwards and you're prepared to admit if you've made a mistake, why not?
0: Yeah, no, we, we've we actually just been looking into um, some cleaner ways to integrate A-B testing on headlines for a client in a future in a future phase of a project we're working on, and and a lot of it boils down to that, you know, the admission that, no, none of us really know how to write the magical best, you know, short headline for an article the first go, but we try different ways and see what works best.
1: I I love those advice for blogger articles, uh, where you get you know five amazing headlines that that will win you traffic each and every time. And I think, well, no, they're just five amazing headlines that win traffic for your blog every time. <laughs> My blog is not your blog, um, you know. And there isn't this magic, this magic ticket because it, inevitably, we we end up with this thing where we say, oh, you know, the, the content must be short and choppy and active tense and, un- and like 95% of the time that is absolutely right but there is always the 5% of time in which that is not right and you have to recognize the client in which that is the case I worked um, a few years ago on uh, a company called Wiltshire Farm Foods who specialize in uh, frozen meals for the elderly so they have a very specific delivery system uh, to make sure that these drivers are you know checked out good people We'll do the same delivery to the same route each week. And sometimes they can be, you know, the only contact these, these people have. Uh, and yet these elderly people are often using the web and this might be the only transaction they do to, to buy their food. So it was incredibly important that we made the checkout as attuned to them as possible. And it broke so many of the, you know, best practices. Uh, I still get people calling me out on it now saying, why did you have it so that it's not your basket and such and such? Whereas I've, me- I've made it specifically first person, my basket, my um checkout, that kind of thing, because that was the language they were talking to us in.
0: Oh, you know, it's there was actually just a really interesting article about that. Your my distinction. The title of the post, I think, was uh, "Yours versus Mine," and he was talking about the fact that it's not so much which one is right, but which one communicates a certain kind of relationship yeah. to the content on the page.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, and and in terms of you know these frozen meals that they're ordering, it's it's a pretty big part of their week. They're choosing their food for the week. It's going to be delivered. Uh, the product descriptions are, are designed to make it as enticing as possible and they try and make the experience as painless as possible to the point where they have, um, they have a 24 hour call, uh, person and it's not like sort of call center in a different country. It's someone actually based, you know, within the organization that will take phone calls for people who are trying to do stuff on the web and are not getting it for whatever reason. Um, That's
0: a bold move. It
1: is a pretty bold move, um, it, and it makes a difference because what they actually found was just by having a phone number there that people could call, calls dropped because people felt that if it went wrong, they could muddle on themselves.
0: In, in a in a previous life, before I did a lot of really heavy web work, um, I worked uh, doing like back end software for the grocery industry. Twenty four hour grocery stores that are open twenty four hours a day don't actually get sales during. The night time. Yeah, absolutely. Like, the actual sales, but sales leading up to their normal closing time and during the rest of the day, increase for 24-hour stores. Isn't
1: that People crazy? People
0: feel more comfortable about going and don't feel like they have to figure out when to squeeze it in, even if they always end up going during what the normal opening hours would have been.
1: Because I've been like this. You go to a different store and you, you think, oh, I've got to fit in everything I need to do in the next 45 minutes before they close. Whereas if I know that it's going to be open for as long as I want, I end up just filling in my basket <laughs> with stuff that I probably didn't need. So yeah, yeah, I can see how that totally works.
0: Yeah, it's it's the psychological impact of knowing it's okay. I, I I don't have to worry about that while I'm here.
1: Yeah, our brains are buggers, aren't they? They trick us on so many things. I think they're working against us. An alien race owns them. I
0: got a friend of mine who who she works in, uh, you know, marketing, and then moved into HR you can consistently increase the sales of almost any product by putting balloons in front of it. Oh man, human (laughs) beings. How have we survived this long?
1: I am now putting balloons in front of everything. I'm going to hand over (laughs) copy to clients with a balloon attached. I am going to have a balloon on my new website,
0: new trend, new trend. So one of the things that we've been finding is just how difficult it is to tackle simple stuff like titles and summaries once you start thinking about how many places those show up with such a diverse set of constraints, like, you know, I I think I went down and I just started going over like all the different places where we were thinking of pushing stuff out, you know, everything from, you know, email to, you know, you know, Google summary text to tweets and stuff like that. And it ranged from everything from, you know, well, you can only really fit 40 characters to, well, you've got about 250 characters to work with. And, 100 to 200 character differences between your you know long and short version that's a that's a pretty significant difference like you know I, how do you even try to target microcopy in that sort of range like that
1: yeah i mean i know that different strategists and writers handle it in different ways the way that i would the way that i personally handle that kind of stuff is i try and forget all about different context initially and i try and think about it um as a, a billboard if i was going to put that description on a billboard which really limits the amount of words that you can use what would i focus on and i don't necessarily try and get like the perfect billboard sentence but i try and work out again it's going back to that that nugget that core there's usually a word or two words that you can build around. So I would work on finding those. Uh, and I think this also goes back to the stuff that I did with radio as well. Because with radio, you're not only thinking about what it is that you're writing, but you're also thinking about the presentation, how they sound, these words. So I say stuff out loud a lot still um, and make clusters of words around that. And then from there, I can focus on what those words are and then build them up into, well, here's the short, short, short version And then, okay, I'm going to allow myself a bit more uh, expansion here. What would I do if I attached another uh, clause to this? And what value does that bring to the previous section or whatever? Uh, And so then um, I sort of play with it a bit. I mean, this makes it sound incredibly methodical and it's really not. But I, I kind of put it together in little blocks um a bit like when you're learning a foreign language and you're doing sentence construction and you're learning the difference between words and the inflections and and what they imply to the emotional resonance of the word so i do that a bit uh, and that allows me to build up these different length things um so i mean it's i, I wish i had an exact science but that's that's the way that I do it. Um, it's again, it's not foolproof. I often, you know, write terrible things and only realize subsequently as I'm sort of going through them again. There was a copywriter who said famously, I'm, um, I'm a terrible writer, but I'm a very good editor. And I think that's kind of where I am with this kind of stuff. I'll write all kinds of things and I'm okay going away from it for a bit and then coming back to it. And often when I come back to it, that's when the magic thing that I was trying to clip onto springs up and I go, right, that's, that's actually where I'm going with this. Uh, and then suddenly it comes together really quickly.
0: That, that carefully thought out raw material plus some distance and time to digest it. Yeah.
1: Then like new thing, new thing you hadn't really even considered. And suddenly it's like, oh, that makes much more
0: sense. It's like collaborating with yourself. It
1: is. I thought, uh, I saw, um, I went to a new adventures conference, um, in January, which happens uh in nottingham and jason santamaria was speaking there and he he was talking about his kind of process and and he said you know ideas like to be ugly uh and he was talking about sketching and and visual stuff but i think that's also true of writing like your your initial stuff is just if it's not rubbish you're not trying hard enough (laughs) um you know if i come out with something that i think is really good i am really i've learned to be incredibly skeezy about that now if i think something is really good there's probably a massive problem with it that my ego is not allowing me to see at this particular point or it might be the perfect piece of writing for an entirely different client and i'm just in love with the thing that i've made
0: it's interesting one of the things that you mentioned earlier um about you know potential topics to discuss when when we did this podcast was um how to basically not be terrible to the people who are actually producing yeah this content and uh, i'm I'm fascinated by that because you know like you know karen mcgrain and i have you know talked about a lot about editorial ux mm-hmm. and i think you know coming at it from a design and developer background you know it's it's this ux challenge and everything but you put it as basically just not being terrible to these people yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm curious what you like what you mean by that and what ways you think that plays out well writing
1: f- for me and i think it's True, for other people, although I'm sure not universally, writing is kind of an emotional process as much as it's an intellectual one. Part of the joy of writing is knowing that you have conjured up from your brain something that is good. Good because it fits the criteria, good because you thought of it all on your own, good because you're writing your first novel, or good because you know it's going to win you a multi-million pound climb, however you want to define that. Um, and I think sometimes writers, when we rub up against, uh, design and development teams, which increasingly, and I'm very enthusiastic about this, increasingly that is more and more what's happening is that teams are taking writers in-house and working with them in an agile process to create content that fits the purpose of what it is that they're doing right from the off, rather than creating a box for them to fill later. But. There is, uh, sometimes a bit of clash of cultures about that. I, I describe writers and designers and developers as all being creative problem solvers in their own way. Um, writing, uh, shockingly involves a, a massive amount of spreadsheets. If I'd known that, I'm sure I wouldn't have got involved. Design involves a lot of maths. Development involves a lot of, um, creative visualization of, of what your end product's going to be. So we have more in common than we have different. But I do find from my point of view that I as a writer I have sometimes got the pointy end of the stick. <laughs> um developers have development stacks, massive amount of computing power and uh and tools built for them and the way that they work. And that's because they can build those tools. So it's not surprising and it's entirely fine to be, you know, envious of it um, and appreciative of it and what it produces. But they have computers on their side. Designers have things like fireworks and Photoshop and doing stuff in the browser. So although they don't have multiple computers on their side, they do have some stuff that helps them get through things quicker.
0: There's support tools that are well tailored for a lot of the tasks yes. they need to perform. I have
1: Google Docs. I just don't, there is nothing I can do to make things come out of my brain faster. Now, I can model content, I can create example content and so on. But when it comes down to it, it's very difficult to replicate the human touch of writing or taking a picture or creating a video or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Ultimately, it comes down to the human being involved. Uh, and there's just the one of me, usually. There's usually several developers and at least a couple of designers and one of me. So partly there needs to be a balance that swings towards, well, how many brains do we need on this? Uh, and also a sensitivity between groups. And, and I mean writers, you know, towards other people as well. Um I want to get sort of writerist about this. Um But to understand what each brings to that group. And I often find in organisations, the writers are still the last to know anything, <laughs> anything at all. You know, a decision is made to change the front page of the site and someone in marketing gets told and that trickles down to someone in the content team who might've heard. And then the
0: day before the writers are told, Oh, you guys are going to have to double enter for a little while. Congratulations. Yeah, exactly
1: That kind of stuff. And so that's the kind of thing that makes for bad blood and makes writers want to pull away from the design and development process because it feels like something they don't understand. I mean, it still feels m- massively like something I don't understand. I, I when I worked on um, AlphaGov, uh, which is now the gov uk site the uk government's one single domain site well the total time for the project was uh, six months i think end to end but i was on it for about four months um creating the content and directing the content strategy for that which i think has had um, some implication for where it's gone since but when we were doing that th- that was a situation where there were several developers and a couple of designers and me and one other content person and it was a bit misbalanced and I, and we were doing week long sprints and I had to explain to them, if you want stuff to enter for this sprint, it's going to make sense. You have to give me at least half a sprint's notice. I have to be working ahead of the official development sprint, which almost goes absolutely against what (laughs) Agile is meant to be because you're all meant to work on it together, but it doesn't necessarily quite work like that because again, I can only produce one thing. No,
0: but it, it makes sense. It's not like you can, you know, build out all this scaffolding and then expect the, the, you know, the people who are actually writing content for it to, like, just fire hose words into it at the, in the, on the last day. Well,
1: that's it. It's like, if you imagine the developers, are, it, we're making a cathedral, the developers have, have made the structure, the designers have come and put the stone in place, and then my job is to go and chip all the gargoyles on the outside, and the whole place needs covering. You know,
0: as a final finishing
1: step. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it just doesn't quite work out like that. So that that was interesting to me. But the other thing about that when I discovered that I really didn't know anything about development was when I was sat kind of hungover in a like greasy spoon cafe in South London. Uh and they were three developers with me chatting away and one of them said, Yeah, we're gonna have to varnish the puppets with a cucumber. And I just looked up and went, What?
0: That's not a that's real not, thing. That's not
1: a sentence you've just said. That's just a string of words. And they're like, no, no, varnish is a thing we do for, like, I think it's um weighing up traffic. And then cucumber is a way of us doing stuff with Ruby and puppets is a way of you know having the two things talk to each other or something. And I was just like, okay, <laughs> I have so much to learn,
0: Um which is why I love- To be fair, we also pick silly names for things.
1: <laughs> there is that. Yeah, it doesn't, they're not the most transparent. Although I did, I did when someone said to me, Oh yeah, with Ruby, we build gems. And I went, Ha! Oh, that makes sense! Sort of. They're at least two connected words. I see. These are
0: nouns that at least belong together. So like
1: the same group. Sesame Street could put those together. That's generally my definition for things.
0: If um, you can, you know, if you can imagine Grover running back and forth <laughs> between two of your key words, and it makes Ruby. sense? Okay.
1: Gem! Boobie, Tim. Yes, exactly. So that's why I love being part of, like, the, within the design and developments of actually, my next contract, which I can't actually talk about right now, but will be something kind of similar to AlphaGov stuff. Uh, it will, I will be working in the same environment. And I'm super excited for that because um, I honestly think that some of the best content work of my life was done on AlphaGov. And it was only really... a a very small contribution to what was going to be a massive project but I just knew that when it was working right it was going really well I think most people tick along with their work and they're they're happy with it but when you get those few times where you're like yeah this is this is really good this I am pleased with this it's helpful for those darker moments where you're there going I can I can never write again I have lost the ability which happens more often than I'd like to admit
0: So before we finish up, there's a couple of different conferences you're going to be appearing at soon. Content 2013 conference in uh, South Africa.
1: That's actually a content marketing conference. And uh, they approached me to speak there. After There was CS Forum in Cape Town in October. They approached me to come and speak to content marketers about why content strategy is important. Yeah, I have to admit, I'm kind of nervous about it because essentially I, I might be going in there and going, you're not doing this right. Um, you should probably start doing it right. Otherwise, things aren't going to work out so well for you. Uh, which could, you know, could be an interesting talk. I am right at the end though, so I'm hoping that if I kind of do some sort of big, uh, singing exit, I could basically bolt it out the back of the hall and be long gone before anyone's sort of realised what I just said. So that might work. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to it because I'm, there's going to be bunches of speakers there speaking on topics that I wouldn't normally hear. Uh one of them even has like the words seo in the title seemingly oh, non-ironically terrifying. i know so i'm not quite sure what to make of that but i am i'm genuine i you know i do like going to conferences and i like going to conferences where i wouldn't normally be there uh, because I, th- I think you just learn so much if you take yourself out of that comfort zone and, and then i'm also speaking uh, in london towards, the, I think, the 15th of May at Future of Web Design in London. And that's got a
0: great lineup of people, so I'm looking forward to that one as well. Before we go, yeah. I know there's also a podcast about gaming that, <laughs> that you is. contribute to. Yay! Where can people go if they are interested in hearing some old-school gaming smack talk?
1: Uh, Player 2, is in the figure 2, player 2couk uh, we have four up there at the moment. We have two recorded that we just need to edit and then, uh, we're gonna be back on the recording bandwagon very soon. Uh, basically, you get to hear me yelp a lot about how great all the games from The Legend of Zelda are ever, uh, and how I can just play them repeatedly and, uh, how essentially no other video game ever holds up to them.
0: It's hard to argue with that premise.
1: <laughs> well, I think so. Uh, and, um, do you know my, my dirty secret? One of my children has the middle name Link
0: that's fantastic thank you thumbs up well thank you very much for joining us it's been a pleasure
1: mm, it's been fun
0: definitely looking forward to uh, talking with you in the future so
1: the, oh do you know the other thing we haven't done which we'll have to do next time we'll have to have our like 10 reason Karen McGrane is the beta- greatest person on earth ever
0: conversation I think there might even be a tumblr for that already but we'll have to work on some new content for it excellent Thanks for listening to Insert Content Here. If you'd like to catch up on our archives or keep up on our new episodes, visit us at lullabot.com slash ideas slash podcasts slash insert content here. You can also visit us directly at insertcontenthere.com.